Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. You dream of finding your ideal pet and giving them a good life. Purina wants that for you, too. Their pet finder platform matches animals with the right owners, and their pet foods offer excellent nutrition. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, July 3rd. Today's episode is the second part of our story on Clint Lawrence and the men of 1st Platoon. If you haven't listened to yesterday's episode, make sure to go back and listen to it first. And you should be aware that this is a story that talks about suicide. I've been back to that moment millions of times since then about what I could have done, how I could have stopped it. And then Hannity's talking about it. You know, we're just like Jesus Christ. They're going to drag us through the mud. So how does Lawrence's case end up getting the attention of the president? Yeah, I mean, it really starts with conservative media. Not long after he's arrested and convicted and sent to Leavenworth, a guy named Alan West, who is a former army officer. Here to weigh in on this and discuss the confusing details of this case is... Retired Lieutenant Colonel Allen West. And is elected to Congress in the sort of the Tea Party Revolution in 2010. West serves one term in Congress, gets out in 2012, and then becomes sort of a conservative media icon. He appears on Fox News and elsewhere. He's the first one to take up Lawrence's case and begins to spin a story of that patrol that, as far as I can tell, is not supported by any evidence. He is sitting in jail right now because he ordered the engagement of the enemy that was making a high-speed charge toward his uh, platoon position. And in the story that West tells, this motorcycle is speeding towards Lawrence's men. They have to make a split-second decision as to whether to fire or not fire. Lawrence, who's responsible for the safety of his men, orders his men to fire in the split second, saving his men from a potential threat. Now, the insidious thing, again, about this is that the Army JAG officers withheld exculpatory evidence that would have exonerated First Lieutenant Clint Lawrence, who sits now at Fort Leavenworth Prison with a 20 years... And then was railroaded by the Obama administration, motivated in West's description by their contempt for the American soldier. So it starts, as far as I can tell, with Alan West. And welcome back to Hannity. All right, a story that no one else in the mainstream media is covering. Former Army Lieutenant Clint Lawrence is now in jail, convicted of murder. It's then picked up by Sean Hannity. This, he was told that this particular road was an area where there was a lot of terrorist activity, right? Yes, he was told that it was heavy with Taliban. And Pete Hedgeseth, who's a weekend host on Fox and Friends. Remember the case of Army First Lieutenant Clint Lawrence, we brought it to you on this program, who was fighting the war And the two of them essentially repeat this story of the events that day. The guys that Clint's platoon killed, the, the folks on the motorcycle, we're tied to, we're bomb makers. Absolutely. The government held that from the initial defense team. Uh, Colonel and that's how it primarily gets President Trump. It's also worth noting at this point in 2017 that Clint Lawrence gets new legal counsel that then turns up some new evidence. His new lawyers have found that at least one of the guys who was killed that day, his DNA was tied to an earlier attack on Americans. And so he was quite possibly a member of the Taliban. 
The court finds that evidence to be irrelevant to the proceedings and denies the appeal because at that point he was standing on the side of the road unarmed. You don't just get to shoot people who are standing on the side of the road. That evidence also creates new a new buzz around the case that allows Fox to and Hannity and Pete Hedgeseth and others to revisit and revisit it. Mr. President, good to see you. Thank you. What a what a week this has been. In 2017, it's been a uh, it's been a great week. We have accomplished a lot. Sean Hannity has one of the first interviews in the White House with President Trump after he's been inaugurated. One night, I know you were watching my show. And in addition to a long list of questions that cover foreign policy and domestic policy, he asked President Trump specifically about Clint Lawrence. You hear the story of Clint Lawrence, another guy, got 30 years, he was doing his job protecting his team in yeah. Afghanistan. We're looking at a few, a lot of, those a few of them. And by the way, right. it's not clear in the interview whether Trump is aware of the case at this point, whether he knows about it. But Trump says, yeah, 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 we're looking into that. And in the course of the years that follow, Hannity continues to talk about it and continues to raise it. What does President Trump say about why he ultimately decides to give a presidential pardon to Lawrence? You know, very little other than he was railroaded, that the Obama administration, you know, was wrong to convict him, that, you know, essentially he was a hero trying to protect his troops in a very difficult environment and that he didn't do anything wrong. And what was the public reaction to that pardon? You know, it's very mixed in conservative circles. I think a lot of people see it as, hey, President Trump is standing up for the U.S. military. In other parts of the country, you know, it was with revulsion that this president pardoned a war criminal. Within parts of the U.S. military, you know, some supported it, I think, but many also viewed it with revulsion. I mean, this was the military policing its own. And so there was a a fair degree of upset and concern within the U.S. military. How do we discipline troops? How do we fight honorably if the president is just going to overturn these on what seems like an incorrect account of what happened? And so... As all of this is going on, as Lawrence is sent to prison and then he becomes a sort of celebrated cause in conservative circles and on Fox News and gets the attention of the president, what is happening to the other members of his platoon who were there and and who testified against him? So the platoon comes back in 2013 and it's a really tough reentry for them. I think I've taken it a lot harder just because I was naive. You know, some of them come back, a handful with murder charges hanging over their heads, or at least the threat of murder charges hanging over their heads. And you got to think, like, I came into this with the best possible mindset, right? Like, all this good I was going to do. You can say that's as stupid as you want to, or naive as you want to, but I still had that mindset. And then in an instant, it was all just shattered. And you're kind of the antithesis yourself, They've been sort of split up in Afghanistan, so they're, they're not coming back together as a unit with the ability to support each other. We were attached to platoons, so we, got, we came back and I was immediately taken from my platoon. That was really tough because I felt like nobody could relate to me. You know, nobody, nobody that I was close to uh, had gone through those things. Many of them feel guilty about what happened. I know Mike McGinnis, the staff sergeant, one of the senior NCOs. I couldn't function day to day. You know, he's second-guessing himself. Why didn't we stop him after the second day? Why didn't I do more to protect those Afghans? Why didn't I do more to protect my troops who were asked to commit war crimes by this guy? And that coupled with, like, my own feelings of, like, self-loathing and, and just 
and, and all the combat trauma. Like, it just... Like, the Lawrence was, like, everything I hated about myself all wrapped up into one thing. They come back and feel both ostracized by their own army back at Fort Bragg. In some people's minds, these guys are part of this out-of-control platoon that took revenge on Afghans after suffering heavy losses, which is not true. So they just come back feeling like pariahs, and the stress of that just becomes unbearable for them. I'd been spiraling uh, for, for a little bit. I uh, started drinking heavily. And one night I got really smashed and I'm driving my car and I pull off on the side of the road and, you know. Mike McGinnis is stopped by a military policeman with a pistol in his mouth when the military policeman stops him from killing himself. You know, this kid, this PFC, pulls up, shines his uh, light into, you know, the cab of my truck at the time and you know, he sees what I'm about to do and he's like, hey. You all right, man? Like, that's all he asks. And, uh, you know, I kind of just fell apart at that, that point, you know, at that point. Lucas Gray drinks so much that he's hospitalized. I was drinking probably, you know, towards the end stages, about half a gallon of liquor a day. I would go to work. Literally, as soon as I got in my barracks room, I would start drinking. And I would start drinking until I passed out. And that was my off switch. So I didn't have to deal with it. These guys and others struggle with, you know, real PTSD, a real sense of moral injury that they participated in a war crime that they didn't do enough to stop it. And so it's just brutal what they go through. I still had that guilt and that just self-hatred and everything that came with, you know, that incident just as came on just as strong as it's always been. And I can imagine that that those feelings that they're feeling after coming back and, and the trauma and the guilt that they're experiencing when they start seeing that this is playing out now on, on national television, that must have just made that feel even worse. Yeah, I mean, they just want to go and hide. And I think what they find over the course of years between 2013 and 2017 is that that's just impossible. Uh, there's a local radio station, 740 AM, and uh, it's all conservative talk. And um, that's, what, that's what I listened to. That's what I grew up listening to. This happens, to I believe, in 2018. Zach Thomas returns home to his hometown. He has a really tough reentry as well. He you know, struggles with drinking and thoughts of suicide when he comes back in 2013. He's one who testifies against Lawrence. And so he's driving to community college in 2018. One day I heard on the radio Sean Hannity talking about this Clint Lawrence and this situation. He's described it as a, a brave soldier that was protecting his men. And here's Sean Hannity talking about this case on the radio and how Lawrence has to make a split second decision to save his men. This guy came in with some, you know, false information, ended up getting people killed because of it. So I heard that and was pretty angry. And of course, he said some other really inaccurate things. And so Zach literally describes himself boiling over with anger. I pulled over on the side of the road, slammed my brakes on and call, find a phone number and call him. Pulls over on the side of the road, looks up the Hannity's show on his cell phone and calls one of Hannity's producers, gets her on the phone and says, hey, look, this is not how it happened. You know, these are, these are the people that I trust and the people that I 
listen to on a daily basis. And I feel like this is how I feel. They're good people. They're being led wrong. You're being misled. I love your show, but Sean Hannity is being misled. Please let me tell you the, the, the truth. And she largely blows him off. So he suggests, you know, call my squad leader, call Mike McGinnis. Mike will tell you how it happened. And I said, hold on, let me, let me call Mike, my friend Mike. And I said, he, he will be able to talk to you a lot better than I can. People always made fun of me. I mean, they, you know, I was a dumb Texan. They thought, you know, I was like a dumb redneck. I don't know anything. Anyways, I, I don't think I'm dumb, but Mike, Mike is a, a good with his words. And I thought maybe he could tell the story a little bit better to them. And she calls Mike and they have a brief conversation. McGinnis, I later learned, wasn't too happy with me giving my, his phone number to Sean Hannity. <laughs> so I called Fox News and I asked them about this. This incident happened in 2018, and both both Zach and McGinnis have very clear memories of it. Zach remembers his phone conversation on the side of the road. McGinnis also supported that Zach called McGinnis and that McGinnis then talked to a producer. You know, it was 2018, they didn't take notes on the call, so they couldn't remember the name of the producer. It would have been one of Sean Hannity's radio producers. I called Fox News about it, and they said they can't find any record of the two of those soldiers making the call, and they asked for the name of the producer, and it's just, it's lost in that moment. They can't remember the name of the producer they talked to beyond the fact that it was a a female producer. And Fox had said that, you know, to the extent that it was a female producer, there at the time, a female radio producer, they can't find anybody with memory of this conversation, which I guess isn't surprising. It was a one-off conversation from many years ago. But yes, I've, I asked Fox for comment about that um, and also asked them for comment about the main thing was wh- why doesn't Hannity or Fox and Friends or anybody from the network reach out to these guys for their side of the story? Why doesn't anyone call them or want to talk to them or ask about what they saw since they were all on the ground. Why are you only interested in the perspective of the one person on the ground that day? And I I haven't gotten a good answer to that question. In fact, I haven't gotten any answer to that question. What's interesting too is that Lawrence's lawyers will appear on Hannity. And at least one case, Hannity is asking um, Lawrence's lawyer um, about the, the events of that day. Was there anybody in the platoon that was with Clint that said that that was the wrong decision? Hannity asks Lawrence's lawyer, well, what about the other guys from the platoon? What did they think of all of this? And Lawrence's lawyer says, well, that I don't rightly know. Well, I don't rightly know. But I do know well, that each not- soldier who, then, then who made the determination from afar that this was the wrong thing to do? The chain of command, the entire chain of People command that determined there. that. Yes, that's correct. Which is untrue because he's read the the court transcript at that point of the trial and he knows that they all testified against him, that they're all furious about this. But it's interesting that no one ever seems to bother to ask them what they thought of that day. And that's really another blow for these folks because it just sort of undermines their sense of reality. Like, what did we do over there? Were we the good guys? Were we the bad guys? It's people messing with their, their life, their memories. It makes you question what you believe and what you don't believe. And I realized I believe things that lots of people in different sides of the platform believe in. You know, I felt betrayed by the by my own people, the people I trusted and and listened to their stories and and um, and thought I related to ended up took a story and twisted it to their narrative. And um, it was it's more sensational to say a soldier was put in jail and it's Obama's fault. <laughs> 
then just to tell the truth where a lieutenant came up with some false information, ended up getting some civilians killed and went to jail for it. So so at the point that Lawrence is being pardoned by the president, I'm imagining kind of the split screen. Now, Army First Lieutenant Clint Lawrence is a free man. It makes me feel gross. feel like I just had this film of on me. Reunited with his family after serving six years of a 19-year sentence. Where you have people who supported Lawrence celebrating. Clint, it's awesome to have you here this morning. Thank you for joining us. Saying this is a great day for America and a great show of support for her troops. But, you know, but he he pardoned three war criminals and they get to go live the rest of their life as some kind of f***ing hero. But then at the same time, you have all these other people who were there with him in that moment who have suffered and in some cases have died in the aftermath of of what they experienced there and and who don't feel any celebration, just a sense of of loss and guilt. I've been spiraling uh, for for a little bit. Literally, as soon as I got into my barracks room, I would start drinking and I would start drinking until I passed out. And that was my off switch. Take us to the moment that you learned a pardon was coming in your case. Well, um, I was laying on my bunk, and they came in there to get me, and uh, they said, hey, you got a phone call. So then some really nice lady comes on, and uh, she's from the White House, and she's like, stand by for the president. And (laughs) I'm like, "Uh, okay. And so then all of a sudden the president comes on, and uh, President Trump... uh, then told me that he was about to sign a full pardon uh, and an expungement of the record. Loss and guilt and anger and betrayal. That's, that's tough being in the platoon that went through all of that and lost their friends and friends lost their arms and legs. And, and then to see a guy that disregarded all the rules. And the bad thing is they, they used our hardships to gain sympathy for this guy. I mean, they don't blame Lawrence entirely for the platoon struggles. These five guys who've died, one of them died of cancer, another died of wounds from Afghanistan, three others, you know, either died of suicide or, or, or somewhat reckless behavior that uh, was a product of sort of depression and PTSD and other things like that. It's like we're cursed. I mean, it's like it's this, this incident made a dark mark on all of us and it almost feels like it's just catching up to us one by one. You know, so they don't blame Lawrence entirely, but they also don't not blame him. I mean, they see him as the agent for some of their destruction. In fact, some of them will say he did more damage to this platoon and to my friends than the Taliban did. That incident and the damage it caused has changed me for the worst since, you know, I was 21 years old when it happened. I feel like I have had a lesser life because of because of that happening. And so when they see him pardoned, they see him standing next to the president a few days later at a fundraiser. I mean, they just feel furious and betrayed, and they feel as though their view of reality, their understanding of what happened to them, just doesn't count or is illegitimate. And then what has Lawrence been doing since he was pardoned? Well, so that first 48 hours, he comes home to his hometown and he gives a big welcome home speech. Hi, it is really good to be here tonight. It really is. I didn't think we are going to make it. He talks for about 45 minutes in front of his old high school 
in which he rails against, you know, the political generals who put him in prison, talks about his 11-minute phone conversation with President Trump and Pence. We finally have a commander-in-chief that understands our mission. Trump 2020. Talks about his love for America and President Trump's love for the troops. I knew that when we had a uh, president like President Trump get elected, that I was not going to stay where I was. Hurrah! You know, basks in the relief of finally being out of prison. You know, he serves uh, six years of that 19-year sentence. Since then, it's been a little all over the map. He then goes to New York. He does a media tour. After that, you know, he appears at a fundraiser in uh, South Florida with Trump. You know, he's still done some fundraising for Republican candidates. He's written uh, a book that's being published by Hachette, which is a big publisher, in which, you know, he blames political generals for his killing. Uh, He says he was discriminated against by uh, the platoon and others because he was gay and that they turned on him because of that. The platoon insists that they had no idea that he was gay, and even if they did, they wouldn't have cared. At one point, there's a really interesting moment that I just found moving and somewhat tragic. And you're the new platoon leader. I'm the new, yep, I'm the new guy. I've been there. Single file. Hannity asked him about the other soldiers from his platoon, uh, and he says to Hannity, hey, I was only in charge of these guys for three days. Oh, I'm the new guy. I've been there uh, about 72 hours by now. So I don't know any of these guys. None of them know me. Um, and, you know, I still, to be honest with you, I can't even remember most of their names. And, you know, th- there's still some people like in the, in the Stars documentary that came out that uh, I'm like, who is that? Like, I, I don't know who that is. And what was striking to me and tragic is they would recognize him in a minute and they can't forget him. What do you think is the big takeaway from this story? Yeah, that's a great question, and I wrestled with it. I mean, part of what I was drawn to it was that it just captured something about this sort of strange political moment that we're in. There have been a lot of stories about PTSD. There have been stories even about moral injury, you know, soldiers who do things wrong or make mistakes in Afghanistan and can't let go of it. What was gripping to me and what was fascinating to me is this was also a story about a way our poisonous partisan political environment just warps people's memories and lives. I mean, we drop like flies. We've been tainted as this, this as the bad guy, you know. And Many lies piled up to try to hide the fact of what really happened. Essentially, this fiction, this lie of what had happened that day was created for political partisan reasons, to make Obama look bad, to make Trump look patriotic, to advance a political agenda. You can sensationalize a story in so many wrong ways. And so it didn't matter what we said or how much sense we made. They had their agenda and they were sticking to it. And you could see the real consequences of that in people's lives. You could see the real impact that had on on guys who deserved so much better. That those lies, that partisan fiction, really hurt them and continues to hurt them. And I hope it's a little bit of a cautionary tale that the way we deal with partisan politics these days, the sort of the poisonous nature, has a real impact on real people who deserve so much better.
Greg Jaffe is a national reporter for The Post. The interviews you heard with Platoon members were conducted by John Gerberg, a video producer with The Post. This story was produced by Rena Flores from Post Reports. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Murray Smith, Rennie Svernovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The post director of audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from the Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.